Welcome to The Working Therapist with Hayden Bolick, a podcast designed to help you grow more, do more, and be more as a therapist. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. We're glad you've joined us for today's podcast. So here's your host, Hayden Bolick. Welcome to this episode of The Working Therapist. I'm Hayden Bolick, your host. And today we have Kirsty Miles, who's with me, who's a frequent guest on this podcast with me. Hey, Kirsty. Hello. And our title today for this podcast is What's in a Name? We're going to actually explain that a little bit more. But before we go into that, Kirsty, why don't you introduce yourself again? I say again because you're here with me a lot. So I feel like you introduce yourself a lot. But for anybody who hasn't heard a podcast before this, their first podcast, they don't know you. So tell everybody who you are. Sure. Kiersey Miles. I am the Purple Team Lead over in Southern Pines, working as a physical therapist. We have a lot of contract sites over here, developmental day centers and various schools, and also our new Southern Pines Clinic. A brand new clinic. We're getting ready to open. We're so excited. We're going from like a little small space to <laughs> we're actually quadrupling our space. So we're, yes. we are very excited and not a little bit overworked right now because of that. Very mm-hmm. overworked, but hey, but that's okay. We're gonna, it's gonna be so awesome, and it, it really actually it really is gonna be awesome. We're tickled. Okay, <laughs> moving on to bigger and better things, which is this podcast. And the title of it is What's in a Name? And really, this whole podcast is your brainchild, Kirsty, which is why you're here because you're actually the one who did a BBS post. And so, for people who aren't familiar with what a BBS is, it's a bulletin board system that we internally use here at PDT to communicate, you know about what's happening all over the whole company. So we put posts up on there about, hey, you know, this is what's happening here or fun articles or just announcements and information internally, basically. And so you decided, hey, look, I really want to write a post about what's in a name. And why don't you sort of talk it through there a little bit? Sure. I think the the reason for the post, obviously, like you said, is our BBS is our way to communicate with our therapist and it's strictly for our therapist. But just with being out in the different contract sites, working with different families, the different contract sites that we have, working with different teachers with different levels of education, mm-hmm. if you just stop and listen and kind of tune into what people are saying, when I hear how people are being referred to, it just really rubs me the wrong way. And if <laughs> I always try to put myself in somebody else's shoes and I'm like, well, if that was my child, how would that make me feel? So when I hear people refer to that autistic child or that Downs baby, it kind of just, it's like nails on a chalkboard. I'm just like, ah, we can do better. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's a 100% we can do better situation because you're right. And it's easy to fall into that trap. I mean, I've caught myself in that trap many, many times, you know, and just as you're sort of getting busy or getting going or not really thinking about what you're doing. I mean, I'm not afraid to say that I have done this before. And And I have too. Yeah, but you're right. It's something to really think about and be conscientious of. It sort of takes the person out of the whole thing. Right. And then you look at a child and you're like, oh, look at that cute little chubby cheeked. Like, that's the baby. It's not that autistic child or, you know, they're not defined by their disability. Mm -hmm. There's so many other things, other words that can be used to describe that child. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Their diagnosis doesn't necessarily need to be the main 
one. <laughs> no, and I think you hit on a huge thing right there because we see the kids before there's a formal diagnosis in place. And then you know, we are sort of treating the child through that whole process when the child, when they get a diagnosis and then how the parents are sort of dealing with that afterwards. And we're not counselors at all, but we do talk with the parents. Nothing changes for us after that child gets a diagnosis. For myself or any other treating therapist that I work with or have worked with, changes for us. I mean, yes, the child didn't have a diagnosis yesterday, and today they have a diagnosis of cerebral palsy, but nothing changed for me. You know, I'm still going to do my regular thing. That child's still the same child, but we work with that parent and sort of dealing with that diagnosis. And I think what you're saying is key because, you know, you don't think about your child as a child with cerebral palsy first, you know, your child didn't change from one day to another just because they've got a diagnosis. They are still the same little person that with the cute personality and the blonde hair or the brown hair or the blue eyes or what. They're still the same kiddo. Mm-hmm. They just have a label now and big deal, you know. So I think it's really important. And I think you hit the nail on the head for a lot of like personal things, too, that go into working with these kids. We don't want to define a child by their label. No. And I think this is such a difficult thing to discuss with other people because we're not saying we're better than anybody else because we recognize this. We just want to draw that recognition to it and make people more aware of it. And so that we can kind of make that shift and reframe how people think about it and approach the situation because, you know, with what we're doing every day at PDT, we all have so many different communication styles and personality styles that we Mm -hmm. work with. And Mm -hmm. our parents have different personality styles. Some of them, things roll off their back. Other parents, we have go home and they just think about every little thing you said and how you said it. And we don't realize sometimes how what we do affects them on just this whole other level that we can't even begin to imagine. Mm -mm. And everybody's personal experiences of all of our therapists, our parents are all so very different that, again, we just want to draw that awareness to this difficult subject and help people to follow our motto of grow more, do more, and be more. And I think this is a way we can do that. Well, and I think you hit nail on the head because so many times parents come in with all kinds of different levels and and you have therapists with all kinds of different levels. And I think you have to always look at the whole big picture. You have to always remind yourself to take a step back and look at the big picture so that you don't fall into poor communication or maybe you come across as not a very caring therapist. And I think taking a step back and looking at the big picture helps you to do that. And you're right, to grow more, do more, be more, which is our tagline, but that's Mm -hmm. what is really the truth. Yeah, I was going to say, it's real. (laughs) It really is. We live it every day, all day, in various capacities. This sounds like, I mean, when we said it, like Mm -hmm. it sounds like something so small, but the impact of it is so much bigger. Mm Mm-hmm. Having been on the parent side of it too, you know, with my own child who's visually impaired, but even sitting in an IEP meeting, see, I can remember, I can pick out the specific time that things had happened, you know, and say, oh, you know, somebody just made a comment to the teacher in an IEP meeting once that I sat in and they said, you know, well, you didn't know you were getting a visually impaired child two weeks before school was starting, did you? And she didn't mean anything by that. You know, but she didn't say a child with visual impairments. She said, you didn't know you were getting this VI child. And she didn't mean one thing by it, but I can just remember thinking, well, there's a lot more to her than just VI, you know, just visually right. impaired. And it stuck with me ever since that even to the, I can remember specifically where I sat, what I was wearing. I mean, that's how much I can remember it and think, oh, and that really hit me. And they, she didn't mean anything negative by it. But yeah, you have to be very conscientious. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even for parents who I think aren't necessarily that sensitive to what people say and stuff, because I don't think I'm that sensitive to what people say sometimes, but that can still stick with you when you're talking about somebody's child. You got to let things roll off your back, but it's hard when it's your baby. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You can't, your mama hen feathers get all up in a ruffle very quickly. Right. And like, don't mess with my child. Now there's a whole other side of me that comes out. So why do we think it happens? And it's a pretty common mistake. It is. I mean, we see it in practice. We see it with our own therapist, with other therapists. We see it with students. I've seen it on people's resumes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes. So I'm like, let's draw some awareness to it. So one of the reasons that we talk about why it happens is we have been trained and drilled all through school, mm-hmm. all through what we do every day to pick out the deficits. It's what we went to school for. I can remember being in grad school, sitting on a park bench, and I feel like, you know, there's certain times when like stuff just sort of clicks for you. And I'm like, why am I sitting on this park bench watching everybody walk? I'm looking at their feet. I'm looking at the way they walk. I'm like naming their phases of gait. I'm like, stop, what are you doing? (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) I mean, that's what we've been trained to look at. Mm -hmm. We're just so geared to pick out the deficits. And sometimes Mm -hmm. we get in that zone and we miss like, oh, they're a person. Hey, (laughs) there's something above the knee. Look at there. Yeah, exactly. I think that that's, you know, one of the main reasons is that we've just been so drilled to look at the deficits. And another big thing in pediatrics, especially, is we are surrounded by the atypical most of the time, Mm -hmm. atypical reflexes, atypical patterns of movement, atypical language, that sometimes we get to that typically developing child and we're like, oh my goodness, you're amazing, but they're just right on time with everything. Mm -hmm. And it seems like this explosion, (laughs) you know, of skills, but that's just really the typical. So I feel like there's a lot to be said that we just hone in so much on those deficits for a number of reasons that we're going to talk about. You're right. You spend all that time in graduate school focusing on learning about various deficit areas and trying to make sure you know it and you want to be good at what you're doing because I say this all the time in interviews, but you know, if you made it through graduate school and to be a therapist of OTP to your speech, you've invested a lot of time, energy, and effort into yourself. And so you've chosen to be there. You've had to work hard to get there. So you've you worked hard at just to learn all that information. So you're sort of kind of wired to look at it that way. But a lot of times I'll tell students, especially students in graduate school, and I can remember doing this. Some of the best advice I ever got was for a supervisor. I was trying to figure out about normal feeding and normal development. And she said, go work in a church nursery or go volunteer in a daycare and just go and feed babies who are normal developing. And I did that. And then in that situation and doing that, I figured out, oh my goodness, these are babies. Like I'd forgotten that these were babies because I'd focused so much on how babies ate and how babies developed that I'd forgotten about the baby, you know? And I was like, oh man, this is kind of fun because they're these fun little babies. And so now looking back on it, one of the things that helped me see the whole child, but at the time, I'm not sure I'd figured this out. It just helped me realize, oh yeah, these are people. They're not a label, you know? So I think therapists need to expose themselves to kids who are typical developing and kids who may not be typical developing. So anyway, that's for that. Okay. So why else does this happen? One is that our training and that we focus so hard on development and typical and atypical development, we forget kind of about the whole child. And then the second is insurance. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is white therapist's uh, favorite topic Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) but you know what it's a different world Kirsty, than when you and I started doing this because insurance was less of an issue we didn't talk about insurance that much and now we talk about it all the time because insurance has changed and we have gatekeeping requirements now that we didn't used to have and ICD-9 codes are moving to ICD-10 codes and it's just it's part of the deal and everything has to be justified by insurance So in that situation, we're always looking at, I guess, the child and the diagnosis code correct. And not that this is funny in any mean, but when we have our admin staff and they're putting in the statistics screen of our EMR system and they're like, oh, good, he has seizures. Like, I know. You're not right. that that's good. No, no that's not good. not good. Yes, that's number one. As far as like, we yeah. know that. Yeah. His insurance will cover and help him get the services that he needs. And I I know it, it's not funny, but like, I'm like, guys, no, that's not good. <laughs> it's like, oh, yes, it's going to get covered. They've got a diagnosis. I'm like, oh, but that not. <laughs> yes. Oh, they had an IVH grade four when they were in the NICU. I'm like, oh, I, yay. I'm like, no, that's, but no, no that's not a NICU. <laughs> that's not a good thing. But then it's covered. So, you know, and sometimes dealing with parents, kind of going back to the thing earlier, sometimes I'll say to them, I'm like, well, you know, a positive thing about having a diagnosis is maybe the insurance now will cover it if they didn't cover it before. So that is a positive thing to having a label of some sort. But again, it doesn't define the child. But as a therapist, you know, in writing your assessment and justifying to insurance why this child needs services, you need all those diagnoses and you need how they interact together and how they affect the everyday lives of these children. Mm-hmm. So it does become the focus in a sense, when we're trying to get them coverage and trying to get them the services they need. So it really becomes a battle within us as a therapist to be like, yes, I want so badly to just see this child as Mm -hmm. this child, but we are being trained to make sure that we can get the services covered so that that child can ultimately get better. And it's just such a conflict. (laughs) Well, it's a huge conflict. And that whole conflict right there, I think, is a whole nother podcast for another day. But it's the whole administrative side of the house, the whole administrative side of a medical practice versus the practitioner side. And it's really not a versus because the two have to work together. But that's really what it is, the practitioner side of the house that wants to keep this child or person or patient as a patient, as a person, not as a diagnosis code or a number or a procedure set or, you know, or whatever, versus the maybe administrative side of a house that are not the bad guys, because I'm maybe I hope I'm not going to make them sound that way, but who are trying to put procedures or labels or codes on things to get things paid for and to sort of help with maybe so that medical costs aren't too high. But anyway, that's a whole nother podcast for another day. So I can see both sides of it. But again, administrative or therapist, it's still a person. Right. Yeah. You know, I think for those medical professionals out there, it's a constant, and admin staff, it's a constant uh, balancing act because you don't want to label the child or patient, but you at the same time do want to get it paid for. But you sort of have to know it. And if you know it, boy, it's a whole lot easier not to fall into this trap. And I think that's why we're doing this, just to make people more aware. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, again, now feeds in our next point about lack of experience or education. Yeah. So we do have a lot of people that are new into the field, or Mm -hmm. we work with educators that are at various levels in many of the contract sites, the school settings. We're talking about teachers, other special instruction, maybe other therapists that aren't with our company you know, just many different types of people in various types of settings. And so 
when you're working with those other people, considering, you know, what level of education or what experience they have had and kind of helping to be politically correct in those regards. So Yeah, I mean, pretty much every student I've ever worked with, I've had to have some part of this conversation or just kind of to make them aware, usually, in some way to this issue right here. Because without a lot of experience, it's easy to maybe just not think about the bigger picture and about the patient and what's going on and easy to sort of label them or maybe just be a little less sensitive to the words you use in conversation and that kind of thing. So it's easy to do that. It's always easy to get caught up in the what and forget about the why. And like we say all the time here, you know, you get the why beat out of you about every day, all day long. And so you have to constantly remind yourself about the why. I just finished up a podcast on burnout. And a lot of the sort of the main thing I talked about is how to prevent burnout. And a lot of it is getting too caught up in the what and forgetting about the why, which is leads to burnout. But this issue right here can be one of the things that sort of leads you in that path of potentially of burnout because you start to get caught up in your what and you forget about why you're passionate about being a therapist and why you're even there. And along the lines of the what, I mean, it goes back to the insurance justification, the documentation, because you're defining the deficits and looking at what they need help with. And instead of being like, oh, this child needs help and what they need and what you're providing to them. And it's so much more. Your therapy is so much better when you're focusing on the big picture too and not thinking, oh, my autistic fella, my child with autism. Your whole mindset starts to change. It's completely different. Your child with autism is very different than my autistic guy I see on Tuesdays. So limited and limited that child. And really our job here, and we say it at PET all the time, this is our why. We have the opportunity to work with kids for a short amount of time in their life so that they can go and live their own life and pick whatever course they want to choose because really they can do whatever they want to. It's limitless. And if we say this autistic guy or autistic girl that I see on Wednesday afternoons, boy, you've really limited their choices about stuff. And you know, that's just kind of not right. And it goes against our why. It goes against why we're therapists. So how do you avoid doing that? And how do you avoid falling into the trap knowing that sometimes we just make mistakes? But how do you avoid it? Well, I think our first step is what we're doing right now, making Mm -hmm. people aware that it's out there, that it's Mm -hmm. even a problem or that it rubs people the wrong way. And I think that's our first step in what we're trying to do, Mm -hmm. just to draw the awareness to it and get people to change the way they think about it or just take a step back, look at the bigger picture and draw the awareness. Mm -hmm. And then also you have to remember your passion. And you've said before, therapy is my therapy, which also sort of encompasses our why, too, about, you know, for you as a therapist, I've heard you say this, I guess I'm putting words in your mouth, but you can talk in just a second if you agree with me. But therapy is my therapy. You've said that because, you know, if you do therapy, you remind yourself, oh, yeah, this is why I do this. This is like this. This is fun. I'm helping this child change the course of their life. Yeah, I'm like, that's my groove. Like, that, I'm, I'm in it there. Like, I know what I'm doing. So if you're pushing me, like, in another direction, like, I get it. I'm trying to grow and expand myself, but I can get in my groove and do therapy. <laughs> I understand that. I'm like, oh, finally, yes, something I'm good that, at. It's, that's <laughs> a happy place. Yeah. That's a yeah. Happy place. That is a happy place. Exactly. It helps you. Yeah. And you remember your why. You're like, yes, this is fun. And this is exciting. I'm helping this little person do whatever they're going to do. And it's cool. 
And you shared your story about Mm -hmm. your little one, but I can remember when my firstborn, he arrived early. He was about over a month early and he was in the NICU and you actually came to visit me in the hospital Mm -hmm. that day and he was in his incubator and the nurse stood by there and you were standing right there Mm -hmm. and because I remember the look on your face and she turned to me and said, oh, he's just got that wimpy white boy syndrome. Mm -hmm. Mm. And of course, I was an emotional wreck at that time. <laughs> well, not the fact that, yeah, your baby's in the NICU <laughs> and you had just given birth. I mean, like a wham, wham. <laughs> That's yeah. a double whammy. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just like, who says that? Mm-hmm. Like, I mm. don't know if there would have been anything more harmful that you could have said to me at that point. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. As he's hooked up to oxygen, I know he can't come home right. until he stops having these bradycardias. So like that to me, I'm like, I would never want to make anybody feel as helpless as that just made me feel because Mm-mm. I can't do anything Mm-mm. right now for him. And, this, and uh, that just hurt. Mm-hmm. And she had like a wimpy white boy. I'm like, well, he's is white. That's a fact. So what? I mean, I don't get like, I don't understand. I remember thinking, I don't understand what you're saying right now. Like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> I don't get it. Yes. It's factual. He is white. I'm looking at his parents. They are too. But I thought, wow, that's pretty majorly like, no, that didn't sound good. It was bad. Yeah. yeah well, and then she went in to share that, well, out of all the races, white boys, White race, male gender, do the worst in the NICU. She did. And I'm just like, why? Why would you tell me that right now? Yeah, like this mom who's just had a baby and first baby, so this is your only experience with a newborn, and they're in the NICU. I mean, well, your personal experience, you had treated other people's newborns, but I do remember all that. Hmm. I wonder if she had burnout. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) I don't know, because he sounds like a little wimpy white boy to me. <laughs> I know, I know he's, him now. He's still pretty tiny, but you know, I mean, he's pretty he, smart little boy. I'm like, he has a name, and to me, he's perfect. And I think that's the thing. In the eyes of any parent, your child is going to be perfect to you, and they are a gift. And so, for somebody to really like make you question that is just really hard. Yeah, I agree. I think it's the same thing when, and I do a lot of feeding therapy and have done a lot of feeding therapy. And we talked about this in the podcast with feeding, but I never feed a baby. Like I never walk in there and say, let me hold the baby and feed them, you know, because the most important thing a mom can do all day is to feed their baby. And so I would never just walk in and think, oh my gosh, let me mess this thing up by me feeding the baby. Because number one, I'm not going to do it as good as the mom's going to do it because it's her baby. And then also, I just think it's not really labeling the child by the diagnosis or anything, but I think it's also just being very insensitive in terms of messing up that whole mama child thing happening. And it's just like the same thing in a therapy session. So I think the same idea can get communicated like sometimes in your body language and actions and what you do. Like I would never, if a child's sitting on a mom's lap at the beginning part of evaluation or whatever, or dad's lap or grandma's or whoever, or grandfather, I would never think, oh, come here, sit on my lap or let me get in the way of that. I mean, it's their child. You know, I kind of think the same thing is almost communicated in some Sometimes in your actions and, and what you do as much as sometimes what you say, because you're not looking at the whole child and thinking about the whole child. Just the same thing as a nurse coming in and saying, he's a wimpy white boy. Mm. Yeah. Mm-mm. But it's the same kind of thing, you know, coming there and just like taking over. I just don't, uh, mm. yeah, doesn't work. Yeah. So you do have to think before you speak. Yeah. You know, sometimes you just have to pause for a minute. I mean, sometimes you're going to make a mistake, but I think it's important to catch yourself and not Mm-hmm. necessarily correct yourself, but say it again and restate it in a different way so that 
not only are you making yourself like more aware, but you're also showing that family, hey, I recognized it. I'm going to correct it too. Mm -hmm. And it's an educational moment for them, Mm -hmm. you know, to hear the difference in what that sounds like. So we want to be the example and we want to work on leading people through it and kind of showing them the way. And so one of the ways we can do that, you know, We've all been in meetings of some kind or another, whether it's an IFSP in our infant toddler world or an IEP meeting, and sometimes there's different providers or maybe there's our own staff is in there, and everybody gets an opportunity to talk in these meetings and present their information, and sometimes you might hear somebody say what we're talking about, you know, and refer to the child by their diagnosis. But, you know, when it's your turn to speak, you have an opportunity to lead and you have an opportunity to set the pace and set the example and Mm -hmm. show people the difference. And, you know, by repetition, if you're doing that, people should pick up on that. They may not always. And there might be times where you've actually got to pull somebody aside and really show them or make them aware that they're doing it because they might not even know. So again, that's what we're trying to do today is just draw the awareness to it. But, you know, we can also lead by example and be the example. And I think that that's what we really hope to achieve is reframing people's thinking and how Mm -hmm. people communicate the disability and it not being the sole focus and not describing the child and that being the only word used to describe them. Because, you know, various situations that you work in, you know, you're going to have the opportunity to do better, to grow more, do more, be more, like what we talked about earlier, or to sort of not, you know? And so I think if you're in a team meeting, like an IEP, or if you work in a NICU as a nurse or whatever situation you're in, but you're going to be in a team of some sort, if you're a therapist or medical professional, you're going to be in a team no matter what. And I think like what you were saying, you have the opportunity to lead on that team and sort of set the example like what you're saying or sort of not and like my aunt grace told me years ago never settle and i didn't know what the heck she was talking about when i was like 10 i was like settle what do you mean settle like settle a bet settle what do you mean settle but she said don't (laughs) settle but i understand i have gotten as i've aged a little bit i'm like you know understand but not it was bigger than just never settle but you know if you think this is not the right way to do this this doesn't sound right to me it probably isn't so you shouldn't do it you know, just like that nurse in the NICU, I mean, she had the opportunity to come in there and just talk all about how your sweet little boy was in there. And, oh, my gosh, he's just so precious because he was and is. And how it, when he goes home, how excited and all this kind of stuff. And, that you know, she had an opportunity there to do so much that she just absolutely didn't do. And if you're another nurse working in there or if you're another person sitting around a roundtable IEP meeting, and I've been there, I'm sure you've been there, too, when somebody else is just not... And you're like, oh my gosh, I hope they don't categorize me with what this person is saying. You know, don't lump me into that group. You really should. You owe it to that person to nicely say, hey, you know, this little fella is not, or this little girl, the Down syndrome thing doesn't define her. She's, look, she's got cute little pigtails and she loves horses Uh and she likes to play ball with her brother outside. And, you know, that's the whole picture. She does also have Down syndrome, but she's... A cute little four-year-old girl who likes ponies. I don't know, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's important. So I don't think you should settle. No, we're raising the standard, really. Yes, you are. Yes, you're doing the other person a favor, maybe, whether they know it or not. Yeah. You you can tell them that. They may not believe you, but you are. (laughs) You know, just in talking about, like, this is probably another podcast as well, but (laughs) we talk about we don't want to breach HIPAA and confidentiality. So you're like, well, I'm not saying their name. I'm saying that behavioral challenge child or like, 
even mm. so, like mm. no parent wants to hear like how hard your session is because their child has behaviors that are mm. difficult to manage. Because guess what? They go home with it every darn day. Yes. They know. <laughs> They're in the food line when the kid's having a fit. They know. They know. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it's not a surprise to them. Like, oh, yeah, uh-huh. I, they're living it. That is huge, Kirsty. Right there is huge because they are living it. Yeah, day in, day out is huge. Exactly. And, you know, they really need somebody on their team. Right, right. And if you and say, so, oh, that behavior child, that they're not, you're not on their team. No. That's now your impression of the child. You're never going to be able to connect with that child because you're isolating yourself from making that connection because you've already put up a wall. You've already defined them. Yeah, you have. And you've also communicated to the people around you that, oh, I'm not really on their team. That's your problem. That's your thing. That's my, you know, versus a whole other way to say it. That's key. I've read this article before. It was about like your mom, you're at the grocery store, you've got your two children, they're in the car. It's 12.30 in the afternoon. Lunchtime's normally 11.30. And they're screaming and they're throwing everything out of the cart and they're falling out and people are looking at you funny. But you're like, well, I took them out past their lunchtime. I have them out past their nap time. They're usually down by now. Like it takes a pretty strong person to look at themselves and be like, this is me. This is not the child's fault. Right. I did this. And so I read that article and I'm just like, yeah, but we need to look at ourselves like this as a therapist and say, well, what can I do differently? What can I do better? And I see it in documentation sometimes because we do go back and randomly check notes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yes, we do. Mm -hmm. But I see it in the objective portion of the note or the assessment, child had behaviors that prevented them from participating and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you build this child out. Well, what the heck did you do? Like, this was your job to make this situation better. What did you do to make it better? Amen to that. <laughs> Couldn't get tests done. Attention to task was poor and behaviors and uh, wouldn't attend to what. I'm like, oh my head. Well, then what? You just built out a whole eval. You wrote up something. What? Really? Because you just said that he couldn't attend to anything. I'm like, oh my goodness. At that point, I'm like, so you babysat because you didn't do anything like skilled. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I have real issues with that. Hold up. You just opened up a can because I can hold on. <laughs> this is another podcast. Hold on. I got to write this thing down. I've got a whole other podcast in me for this. Really curious. Kirsty and I, every week when we get together, we probably just based on a various topic, we come up, like by the time we're done, we've got like 20 podcasts. We've, well, somebody needs to record that, that. Not really. <laughs> not. But I think that the sole purpose in saying that is like a child is not defined by their behaviors, not yeah. defined by their diagnosis. They are first and foremost a child first. And we can't ever forget that. And we just need to be very, very careful when we're communicating to other professionals, to parents, teachers. It doesn't matter who we're communicating to. PDT, we want to set the example. Mm-hmm. The first thing that popped in my head is you're saying that because that was good. If you didn't write that down, you should have because I was. And so you could stop now, (laughs) rewind, and go back uh, because I was writing that down. Because you don't want to define a child by what they can't do. You don't want to define anybody by what they can't do. And a lot of times when you give somebody a diagnosis or you define somebody or a child by their diagnosis, you're identifying the area of deficit. And I get it for the insurance justification and all that. And it's got to be there. I understand all that. But you sort of are saying, okay, well, we're starting here what this child can't do or their main 
problem. And and that's never how we should look at it. We always should look at it. Okay, tell me all the things they can do. Okay, yeah, they might have some difficulty transitioning between tasks, but boy, oh boy, there's all kinds of great stuff they can also do. So yeah, I need to work on that. Good thing, because that's what I'm there for. So that job security, yay for me. But <laughs> let's think about all the great things this little kiddo can do. And let's think about all the gifts that they have and the positive things that they've got going on. And parents sometimes need all of that. Sometimes when they get to us, they've been told all the stuff that's wrong with their child or they can't do or, oh, you know, he's a behavior problem and this and that. They need to hear like, hey, this is what they're good at. So let's start there and we'll work on a few other areas too. You know, let's start positive. We've had kids come back from the doctor and they're going, well, they're not going to walk. And I'll look at a therapist and I'm like, well, let's do everything in our power to prove them wrong. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's our goal. That is our goal. It's their life. They can choose to do how they do their life. And we help with the little areas so they can live their life. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, how many times have we heard that? The family comes in and says, oh, well, the doctor said they can't do this, this, and this. I'm like, well, have they told the child? Because they don't act like it. You know, like um, they act like they haven't heard that. I guess they didn't get the memo, and so let's not work like that. So I think we do have another podcast on that topic somewhere too. Though but <laughs> that was good. There's a lot of emotion. Kirsten, I get all fired up. That's right. So I think takeaways from this podcast. I think if you're out working and you listen to yourself, listen to how you talk about a child or about your patients and how you're defining them, and if you find yourself saying my Down syndrome appointment at four o'clock or my autism appointment at three o'clock or my torticollis kiddo or that kind of thing, you definitely need some reframing. And hopefully this podcast will help that. Definitely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Exactly. Because that's just not the standard you should be working up to. And it's not our standard here at PDT. And there's a whole world out there for you and all these little kiddos, (laughs) all the good things they can do and the whole big person. So your world is getting ready to expand. So that's kind of closes us up a little bit, Kirsty. Anything else you want to add? No, that pretty much wraps it up. Okay, well, good. All right, so thanks, everybody, for listening. You can catch other podcasts that we've done on our website, theworkingtherapist.com. And we've got lots of topics here, Kirsty again, in lots of areas. But thanks, everybody, for listening today. Thanks for your time. We enjoyed it. And we'll catch you on another episode of The Working Therapist. Thanks for joining us for today's edition of The Working Therapist an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. If you would like more information regarding this podcast or would like to get in touch with us for any reason, visit us on the web at www.pediatricdt.com. That's pediatricdt.com. 